So last time in the Shorter Catechism, you'll remember that I did a general introduction to the Sixth Commandment. That was just last week. Seems like two weeks ago for some reason, but I guess it was just last week. So we looked at question 67. And so let's confess the answer to that question in way of review from last time. Question 67, I'll do the question, you do the answer. Question 67, which is the Sixth Commandment? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not kill. Now we began looking at what the word rashak means, uh, which is translated kill, what it means in the sixth commandment. What does that word actually mean, the Hebrew word that's used there, translated kill? We saw that it was used of taking human life and not ever of taking plant or animal life. So it's not quite like our word kill, because we can talk about killing weeds or we can talk about killing an animal, but you can't talk about the word that's used here in that way. It's always of of people. And we saw that this word almost exclusively refers to unjust rather than just killing, such as authorized executions or killing that occurs in self-defense or war or something like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't refer to such things, killing in that way. And we saw that, so, so in those ways I just talked about, it, it's like our word murder. But we also saw that it was unlike our word murder in that it also includes involuntary manslaughter, which we don't call murder. So that helps us to get an idea of the actual wording that's used here. Next, we looked at the fact that the authority behind the commandment is God. We are not authorized to decide who lives and who dies. That's for God to decide. Many times, this is where a lot of wrong is done in in people deciding who lives and who dies instead of God deciding that. Saying that people have a right to life can be misleading. It's, It's rather that God has not authorized, say, parents to take a child's life. They say, oh, you know, that... People will argue, you know, against abortion. We should speak against abortion, but they'll say the reason is because we, the child has a right to life. Well, it's better to say that God has not authorized us to kill a child in that manner. If God has authorized it, they don't have a right to life, and there are certain times when he has authorized the killing, like he did when uh, they went into the land of Canaan and God told them to kill the men, women, and children. And that was an authorization. They didn't have any right that they could speak against what God had decreed. He can give life, he, can, he gives life, and he can take life away. Kings and or other authorities also sometimes think that they have the right to decide who lives and who dies. They do not, only in subjection to God's will and his word. And nor are we, do we have a right to take our own lives, to say, oh, well, it's my life, So I can do what I want with it. I can terminate it whenever I want. That's a perversion of what God has authorized. He has authorized rulers to execute those who commit capital offenses, to wage a just war, and he has authorized killing in necessary self-defense. Lastly, we looked at murder as itself an attack upon God. That's what makes it such a, a terrible sin. We were made in God's image, and Satan came to destroy God's image. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
He came to bring us into spiritual death, which leads to physical and eternal death. Those who take their neighbor's life unjustly, like Satan, show disdain for the image of God. That's the great offense that is involved. This is especially the case when the killing is through because of persecution. Because then the reason that the people are being killed is because they are bearing the image of God. You can listen to that sermon if you missed it. It's important because it provides an important overview that we need to understand in our day of assisted suicide, abortion, passivism, and the general indifference that people have toward God Almighty, where they don't understand why these things matter. But there is much more to say about the Sixth Commandment than what I said last week. As with all the commandments, we're not to look at it in a narrow way as speaking only of, to the letter of the law. In this case of this commandment, only when you actually kill someone. It's, it speaks to much, much more than that. Jesus teaches us that. There are two general topics that I want to pursue that are, show the extent to which this commandment goes. That we, We'll look at these in the next two weeks. This week, we will consider that when our Lord opposes murder, he also opposes the sentiments that are in us that are associated with murder. Things like hatred, resentment, anger, this sort of thing. He opposes those as well as the sins that we may commit that will stir up anger in other people. Then we're doing something that is breaking the sixth commandment. If I do something make people really irritated, annoyed with me, so they want to get rid of me, then I am provoking people to break this commandment, and I'm guilty of breaking the commandment in that way. Next time, we will consider the things that we, we do that show a disregard for our lives and the lives of others, like speeding through a neighborhood or mangling our bodies with cuttings or things like that that uh, are related to not looking after our bodies in destroying the image of God. In dealing with these subjects, we will be looking at both what is forbidden and at what is required at the same time. So let's confess then the answer to question 68 and question 69. We'll be looking at both this week and we'll be looking both at both next week. Not like we've been doing where we do what's required and then we do what's forbidden. This week we're looking at both of those together with regards to, as I said, the sentiments that are associated in a part of the violation of this commandment. So question 68, what is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. So you see, not just does it require you not to kill someone, but also to do things for the preservation of other people's lives, that, life that are, are appropriate. Question 69, what is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. And we're looking at the whatsoever tendeth thereunto. What, what leads to murder? Okay, Hatred, resentment, anger, those kind of things. That's what we're looking at today. So that, that's my focus. In opposing murder, our Lord also opposes 
all murderous attitudes and sentiments that turn us against our neighbor as well as sins that we commit against our neighbor that turn him against us. To put it in a positive way, he calls us in this commandment to be for our neighbor instead of against our neighbor. I remember reading in John Murray about murder and hatred and things like that, that that's what it boils down to. Are you for your neighbor or are you against your neighbor in his life? For our scripture reading, I've chosen Matthew 5, 21 through 26, where Jesus addresses this subject in the Sermon on the Mount. So please give your careful attention to the reading of the word of God, looking to the Lord that he might give you a blessing as you hear his word. I'll begin with Matthew 5, 21, the word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. There we end the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. So we'll look at three things. First, that the root of murder is unjust anger. Second, that we're to avoid anything that would wrongly stir up anger in ourselves or others. And thirdly, I want to point you to Jesus as our example and our deliverer. Okay, so let's begin with the first thing. The root of of murder is unjust anger. Jesus tells us this. He begins with what we all know in verse 21 with his you have heard it said statement. You have heard it said, you you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. It has been the case as long as the world has stood that those who murder are known to be guilty of wrongdoing and deserve to be punished for it. There's never been a time in the world when that was not known, that, yeah, you shouldn't kill your neighbor. In our sin, we come up with ways to justify various forms of murder, but we all know that murder is wrong. So we'll find ways to try to say that we can do it somehow and it's okay or whatever, but it's it's not. We're twisting, you know, in some form. And murder is always seen to be wrong in some way, or is always seen to be wrong in, in every society. Jesus begins with what we all know, that. But then he moves to what we seldom choose to consider. He tells us that we're guilty of the sin of murder, even when we're angry with others without a cause. In verse 22, he says it. It's a high standard. Remember, the commandments come from God. So Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. This is rather jolting to us. You say, you mean even if I have not actually taken another person's life, 
I will be judged for those times when I have been unjustly angry? Is that what this is saying? Jesus says, yes. This is what will, will happen. You will be in danger of judgment. He is making us look at the whole scope of what murder is. The entire spectrum. Think about it. When you murder, you eliminate someone because you do not want that person around. You eliminate someone because you do not like what they're doing. You don't like what they have done or what they stand for or what they have. You don't like it that they have something that you want and you can't get up because they're in your way. For some reason, you are against them. You're angry with them and you want to stop them from living. Their life for some reason, offends you. Somehow their living is in your way. Now, when your desire to stop them is brought to its fullest expression, you murder them. But the root of murder is the unjust anger. That's where it begins. You don't murder someone without first not wanting them around. That's where murder begins. It hardly ever goes as far as taking their life when you have those sentiments. It doesn't usually go that far. There'd be a lot of dead people if it did. But uh, it's part of the same sin. It's all of a piece of the sin of murder. That's what Jesus is saying. Just as the root of a tree is part of the tree. Jesus shows a kind of progression as he continues in verse 22. You progress from anger to calling your brother Raka, which means worthless, a person for whom for which there is no reason to keep them alive. And from calling him Raka to saying he is a fool, a person who is reprehensible and who is unfit to live on the earth. Very often you may not actually take his life for another a number of reasons when you call someone these things, including Fear of punishment and public shame. You know, if it wasn't for public shame, there'd be a lot more people dead too. Or if there were no law, if if laws were not enforced against murder, there'd be a lot more people dead. But you wish him dead. You wish him gone. His life is an offense to you. It interferes with you and it bothers you. That's where murder begins in your heart. Note well that Jesus spoke of anger without a cause. But from what I just said, it sounds like there is a cause. They've got something you want. They're in your way. They bother you. They offend you. They've uh, done something that you don't like or they're doing something you don't like, whatever it is. So what does he mean without a cause? There, there usually is some sort of cause, isn't there? Well, it's that Je- what, what Jesus means when he says that is he means that without a just cause, without an appropriate, legitimate cause, you don't have a reason to be angry with them. Anger is unjust when you're angry with another person, even though they have done nothing wrong. That's the simplest form uh, where anger is not justified, when they've done no wrong. Take an example. Maybe you're starting a business and you try to get some friends together to invest in your new business, but they decide not to do it. So you become angry with them. You're not that, you know, you don't, you don't want to talk to them because, you know, I'm trying to get them in my bed. They don't want to even do it. I don't know. I don't even want to talk to them. I don't want to go hang around with them anymore. You know, that's, that's anger that's not 
appropriate. It's not justified. You, you don't have any right to think that somebody has to join your business venture. It's not a valid reason to be angry with them. Or maybe your mom told you to clean your room and you didn't do it, so she tells you again. You get angry, ah, you know, because she's telling you again. Well, if anything, she should be angry with you because you didn't do what you were, you were supposed to do, but she did no wrong. You didn't clean your room. Your mother has authority. She asked you to do that. You didn't have a good reason not to do it, and she reminded you, and you don't have a reason to get mad at her. That's unjust. That's murderous kind of anger. Or maybe you are the parent, and you're tired, and you had a miserable day, and you lash out at your little daughter just for being there, really, is about all she did, just that she came in the room, and maybe she was playing, and she knocked something over, and you just, you lash out because you were, you had a bad day, and you came home, and you wanted it to be quiet, some peace and quiet, and you're angry without a cause. That's what Jesus is talking about. Don't, don't be angry without a cause. You've got no cause for it. James tells us where this anger comes from. He says it comes from your desires. You, you have something you want. Maybe it's even something that's not in itself sinful, like peace and quiet. And somebody interferes with that. So you get angry with them. When they didn't do anything except they made ordinary noise and you, you can't tolerate that because you wanted it to be different. You have to put your own desires ahead of other another person to be you you have put your desires ahead of another person when you get angry like that and now you're unjustly angry with them because your desires were more important than that other person you wanted that person in the case of the investment to invest in your business and they didn't that was your desire your desire was not met so you're mad you wanted to go out and play and your mom sends you to clean your room so that's an unjust cause you, you want a quiet evening. There's your little daughter running around the house breaking things. Your anger is selfish and unjust. It is without cause. But anger is also unjust and in a sense without cause when it is inappropriately expressed. The expression of it is unjust or without a cause in that case. You, can, you shouldn't have done what you did with your anger. In other words, it was not appropriate. But anger, you see, does have a valid place. Anger is meant to stir you up when wrong has been done so that you can take appropriate action, action that honors God. This is something that's often denied today. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Jesus was angry at various times. When you're angry for the wrong reasons, as we've just seen, the anger is wrong. But what if someone really has sinned? The anger is proper, but only when it is aimed at righting the wrong in a way that pleases God. It is about God and about sin, not about your selfish desires. So the anger itself can be for a right reason, but then it can be wrongly expressed. I'll give you some examples. For example, if you take vengeance into your own hands. In other words, you're going to punish the person. I'm going to even up the score here. I'm going to settle this, and you're going to do it in your own way. Maybe the, your way is to go and gossip about the other person. You say, oh, I, I wasn't really angry. Yeah, if you're gossiping 
you're, you're shooting at your brother, as it were. You're, you're damaging them. And it, maybe it's a real sin that they committed. Okay, that's what we're saying. They, they committed a real sin. But you don't handle it by going and gossiping. That's inappropriate anger, an inappropriate expression of anger. It's a sinful way to handle it. You have taken matters into your own hands. That anger is without a cause because there is no cause for gossip. Anger itself had a reason, but not how you expressed it. Or maybe you're going to take revenge. You're going to cheat them because they were cheating other people. You're going to pay that person back. Or you decide not to help them when they're in need because of something they did in the past. You're going to punish them. Oh, well, they're in need. Well, good for that. I'm glad to see that now. I'm not going to do anything for them. This, too, is anger without a cause because there is no cause for that kind of anger, that kind of an expression of your anger. Or maybe you curse them out or you resort to violence against them. All of these actions are sinful expressions of anger, unless we're talking about a self-defense kind of a violence. They are wrong. They are anger without a cause. Anger is also wrongly handled when, as Paul put it to the Ephesians, you let the sun go down on your wrath, on your anger. That means that you keep it inside of you instead of taking appropriate action. You seethe with resentment and bitterness and you become cold toward the one who has sinned against you and you never address the problem in the right way. That is not a right expression of anger. Properly, you are to leave vengeance with God. Now, what does that mean, though? That doesn't mean do nothing. Say, oh, I'm just going to leave it with God. Well, there's a certain way where you could say that, and it would be true, but it doesn't just mean that you don't do anything to leave it with God. Very often, there is much that you are called to do when you leave it with God. When you leave it with God, you do what God has told you to do and leave the rest with Him. If you're a parent, it means that God's vengeance is expressed through you as a parent is to be expressed in a proper way when they have sinned, the chastisement. You are to address them in a proper way, the child in a proper way, according to God's will. And that might include corporal punishment. But it's not just where you fly off the handle. It's not that kind of out of control anger that you go into a flare because you finally got so irritated. But it's the kind where you're controlling your conduct and you're bringing that um, punishment to bear on your child according to God's directives to give them wisdom. The rod and reproof give wisdom. If your Christian brother or sister has sinned, you go to them humbly and gently and rebuke them and try to restore them to the Lord. That's what Galatians tells you to do. And then uh, also um, Matthew 18. And if they will not hear you, what do you do? Then you can go and talk to everybody else about it. No, you take one or two other people with you. The matter stays just between you and the one or two people. And you try to persuade them. If that fails, then you take them to the elders. If they still refuse to repent, the elders are to suspend them from the Lord's Supper and finally to put them out of the church if they will not repent. It is wrong, you see, if you don't take action because the action that God calls for is for you to go to them and go through that process that he's appointed. If someone has committed a crime, it very often means that you're obligated to report them to the authorities. 
The police and the judges of our land are God's ministers of justice who represent the Lord when they sentence those who break the law. There's a reason that when Romans 12 says, where God says in Romans 12, at the end of Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, that the very next chapter goes into the governing authorities that God has appointed to exercise what? God's vengeance upon those who do wrong. So it is their task on earth to exercise. It is God's vengeance when the civil magistrate punishes wrong. God has vengeance, of course, beyond that in the final judgment and in his providence in many other ways. But that is exercising God's vengeance in a proper way. And of course, all of this should be saturated with prayer. And I need to say as well, when we talk about someone's committed a crime, it often means that you're obligated to report them to the authorities. If we have an unjust civil magistrate, there's times when something that they may say that is a crime that God does not call a crime, it would actually be wrong to report someone because they didn't do anything wrong before God. And to hand them over to an authority who's going to punish them, maybe because they um, said that the, the dictator was dishonest or something like that, and he actually was, and they were reporting that and trying to deal with it, and then so you, you, you say, oh, they said something against the dictator. He said, if anybody said anything against him, we should turn him in. You turn him in. No, no, that's not appropriate. The point is that sin is to be dealt with, though, in ways that honors, honor God. That is the proper expression of anger. So I hope you see the main point here. There's a lot of more ways that we could have talked about this. But we are not to define murder on our own terms, only as taking someone's life. The Lord is displeased not only with murder that comes to full expression, but also with murder that begins to arise in your heart. He is displeased with unjust anger when it rises in our hearts and no one else has any idea that it's there, even when no one else sees it. If it's in your heart, God sees it. It is a great sin in us. We were created in His image, and His image is grossly distorted when we oppose one another without a cause. We are rather to love one another just as our Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved each other from all eternity. But further to this, we see that anything that leads to murder is also reprehensible to God. In this regard, Jesus calls us to avoid anything that would unjustly stir up murder in ourselves or others. Specifically in our text, he calls us to make peace with those who have wronged us. You can see that in verse 23 and 24, where he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, you're to be so opposed to murder that if you have done something sinful against your brother, something that might cause him to hate you, to turn against you, then you're to go clear it up with him immediately. Don't leave it hanging where he's got a reason to be angry with you and to, and to even temptation to hate you. You've done something sinful that might stir him up in a way and his, his anger might become unjust. And because you know how the Lord hates unjust anger and for us to be against each other, you're to go and make everything right with your neighbor at once. It's to be to you a horrendous thing that your sin might be the cause of division between you and your brother. 
that you might create an angry situation between you and your brother. Jesus tells you that you shouldn't even worship God if you don't go to your brother about it. How can you when you have been the potential cause of stirring up murder in your brother's heart that God hates? He will accept, he will accept you in your worship, or, or will he accept you in your worship if you're mistreating your wife? Does the Bible not say that even our prayers will be hindered if we're not treating our wife right? We can't even pray until we've dealt with that. Will he accept you and your worship if you are provoking your parents by your sin and disrespect? You can't be walking with God and communion with him, enjoying him, delighting in him, worshiping him. If, if things aren't right with your parents, if you haven't made things right, even if they don't know about it. Will he accept you in your worship if you have cheated your brother or done some sin that might cause him to curse you in his heart? Maybe you cheated him and you got away with it. But what if he finds out about it? What if he doesn't? You've done wrong to him. There's something between you. You need to go and make it right. Jesus insists that you're in danger of serious judgment for these things. He tells you to go and agree with your adversary quickly. Make things right with him before he takes action against you. You're to beat him to it so that uh, before he comes to you, you should be going to him. Jay Adams used to say that, you know, both people are supposed to go. Sometimes people say, well, I'll wait for him. He's the one that did wrong. He's got to come to me first. But no, you do it both ways. And he says, ideally, you're going to meet on the way because both of you say, oh, my brother has something against me. I did wrong to him. The other person says, oh, my brother sinned. I need to go and talk to him. And so you call each other up and your, your phone line intersects at the same time. So this is, this is how we should, um, that's how we should be going. Um, of course, this needs to be qualified. It's not that you're never to do anything that might provoke your neighbor. It's rather that you're not to do anything, what, sinful that might provoke your neighbor. It's very often the case that righteousness provokes your neighbor to anger, but you're still to be righteous. You don't stop to be stop being righteous because it provokes people. Jesus constantly <laughs> provoked people to anger by his righteous living, and even by the rebukes that he brought against their, the wickedness that he saw around him. He could have avoided making a lot of people angry if he had kept his mouth shut. He might have even been able to avoid the cross completely, but that would have not been right of him, would it? He needed to speak against the wrong that was going on. You're not to be a mealy mouth who never offends anyone. It's rather that you're not to offend anyone by doing wrong. That's what you're to avoid. It is wrongdoing that you are to avoid not only because it is wrong, but also because it can stir up your brother against you. Jesus is talking about those times when your brother has something against you legitimately because of wrong that you have done. That's the time that you're to go to him at once and make it right. Okay, and Jesus' specific example here about provoking our neighbor to anger ought to lead us to an important deduction. If we're to avoid stirring up murder in others, we are to do all we can to avoid that which has the potential to stir up hatred in our own hearts as well. In other words, if you're putting yourself in a place where you're going to be unjustly with your brother a lot, you you need to deal with that. You need to, it's not that you're to go out of the world. 
You have a duty to love your neighbor and you can't do that if you retreat from society in a vain effort to avoid people who might make you angry. What you need to do instead is deal with the sinful lust that is in your heart. Because we saw that in James, didn't we? I remember how I mentioned that he says in his epistle that the source of fights and wars are your desires that are not satisfied. That's the problem. What we talked about before, you wanted peace and quiet and your daughter was there and she, she interrupted you, your peace and quiet that you wanted so much. So you've got to let go of that desire. Not even a sinful desire itself. It becomes sinful when it's elevated above people. Or you wanted your friend to invest in your business and he didn't, so now you're angry. Or you wanted that guy at work to do his part of the project as well as you did yours and he didn't, so now you're angry with him. You've got these desires. Or maybe you're bitter toward your parents because all you wanted was a normal childhood. And they abused you and they mistreated you. So now you're carrying bitterness around and spilling it all around you everywhere you go. It's like poison in your relationship with God. It's doing you great harm. It's doing everybody else great harm. It's not a, not a proper thing. So you're carrying this around. You need to repent and accept what God has given you. Let go of those desires that you're clinging to so strongly. You're here for him. And if it is his will for you to suffer, you're called to return love to those who brought you, brought suffering to you. Your life is not yours. You belong to God. You say, well, what could be wrong with, what could be wrong with wanting a normal childhood? I already told you. It's not wrong in itself to want a normal childhood. The wrong is when you refuse to accept the childhood that God gave you and you become bitter about that and don't deal with your anger. You're really angry at God in that case. If he surrounds you with enemies and abuse in this fallen sinful world, it's your calling to love your enemies and to do good to them. Now, if there are courts that are exercising justice, there might be an occasion to, to turn them in, like we said, to, exercise, to carry out the proper ways that God has told us to deal with these things or bringing them for church discipline in the channels that we talked about. But if those things fail then you need to deal with those desires. Your, your desires are what cause you to hate, your selfish desires that you don't let go of. Your desire must rather be to do the will of God, to do what is pleasing to him at all times and in all circumstances. In Matthew five forty six, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors the same? So if you can't love anyone unless they're loving you, you've got a problem. There's not a lot of sanctification going on there. Unbelievers can do what you're doing. So the thing you need to avoid is your own selfish desires. If you have hatred and envy and strife and bitterness in your heart, if you have unjust anger toward other human beings, your selfish desires are behind that. Root them out and set yourself to please God. You say, but this is hard to do. How can can I just root out when I've had all this abuse? How can I root out those sinful desires? Of course it's hard to do. Did anyone ever tell you that you are a sinner and that you need a savior? They told you that because you can't deal with this stuff. 
You can't deal with it yourself. You've got to come to him to deal with it. So let me tell you what the best thing you can do about murder in your heart. The best thing you can do is look to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful example he is. Do we find self-seeking in Jesus Christ? He came to do his Father's will. Everything he did was with the goal of pleasing the Father. He said that it was his very food and drink to do the will of the Father. He was angry, but his anger was never because his own desires were not satisfied. His anger was stirred up when his Father was not honored. He was incensed when he saw spiritual leaders abusing the people of God. His anger was aroused when his disciples tried to dissuade him from going to the cross and doing the will of God, and he rebuked them. Instead of unjust anger, we see in him the most vehement love. We see him giving himself fully for us even while we were enemies that we might be saved. We see him going to the cross to bear our punishment so that we might be forgiven and live forever. Far from hatred, far from murder, he yearns for us to live as image bearers of God. Remember, not just to live, but to live as image bearers of God, to truly live the abundant life to which he calls us, to live in the fullness of life that he purchased by his own blood. Oh, that we might imitate him, that we might love one another as he has loved us. That instead of hatred, we might lay down our lives for each other. That is the goal for us. But that, in its, but that is not really a lot of help, is it? And we're talking about bitterness. It's down there deep. How, how do you root that out? I mean, just being told to root it out. And just being told that Jesus is an example, how, how does that really help us? And, and it's true, you know, the, um, Jesus is much more than an example. That's the good news. He's a savior. You know, the liberal churches, they leave Jesus stuck as only an example. He doesn't actually save people. He just sets an example. He's the poster boy for whatever cause we have in the liberal church, and that's about as far as he goes. But we have to come and look, we look to him to actually root out from us the sin that is in our life and to bring, of course, pardon to us from the, by the cross. So you should look to him to free you from murder and fill you with love for your neighbor, murder that is in your heart. This is what delights the Father, and Jesus wants in you what delights the Father. So he's committed to this. He desires this. He came to give you the fruit that the Father delights in. And what's the the head? What's the first thing on the list of the fruit? It's love, isn't it? Not hatred, but love. Jesus is committed to producing the fruit in you, love in you, that the Father and that Jesus himself delight in. He wants to see that. He has plans for you to produce this love. And if you belong to him, you will. The future is in his hands. And he has beautiful plans for you to lead you into a life of love. He will expose you. He will rebuke you for all the murder that is in you. That it might be rooted out. That you might stop justifying it. That you might see it. That you might confess it. 
and that you might repent of it. And he will lead you into situations and circumstances after that that will test you and stretch you to learn to love your enemies when they do evil against you, that your love might grow and mature. And all along the way, he will give you more and more grace to strengthen you and transform you so that you will become more and more like him. He is excited about the future that he has for you. Beautiful things are in store for you. Do not fight him clinging to your own desires, clinging to your own hostilities. One of the most foolish things of all is the way people will cling to bitterness. They just won't let go of it. They'll hold on to it like it's some kind of precious thing and it's destroying their life and it's destroying the life of people around them. It is a murder in the heart, a murderous thing. Walk with Jesus Christ. Delight in Him and who He is. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Draw upon His enabling grace and strength. He will help you be rid of the unjust anger and the bitterness and be filled with pure and holy love. Beautiful love. It will be for you as it was for Judah in Genesis. In our earlier service, we saw how this man was so full, who was so full of hatred that he delivered his, his own brother to be murdered because of his bitterness. He's so full of his own selfish desires and how he was broken and humbled. He turned out to be the very man that stepped forward to offer himself in place of his brother Benjamin for the sake of Benjamin and for the sake of his father. It's hard to believe that he was the same person. Why do I tell you that? Because he was the same person and because God is the one that can change you. If God could take such bitterness that this man actually did cast his brother into a pit and led the way and having him sold as a slave. He actually did that to his own brother. And he changed him so that he said, let me be a slave in place of my brother, a brother that he might have had envy toward. That is a remarkable transformation of a man's character. How did that happen? Did he just kind of turn over a new leaf? No, it was the transforming power and grace of God. You are not beyond reach. God is able to do these things. He is powerful. It's hard to believe that he's the same person, but God's grace met him and God's grace transformed him over the years. That's what the grace of Jesus Christ does. There is hope for all of us in Christ. He takes murderers and he fills them with beautiful love. Perhaps you can see things in your life along the way that were there and they seemed so strong and so prevalent and like they would never go away. And then God began to work and gradually that thing began to change. Sometimes suddenly it changed. God brought you to an end of yourself. I remember a man who had been a drunkard for years and years and years. He came to the Lord and I love his testimony. He said, the Lord took away my thirst. You know, just like that, he was no longer a drunkard. Sometimes people are converted and they struggle with it for for many years. But the Lord who delivers is there. And if we come to him and we look to him, then he is the one who can take a murderous heart and turn it into a beautiful, loving heart. He is in the business of saving us. 
Don't be too proud to look to Him, to plead with Him, and ask Him to root it out of you. Maybe you like your bitterness a little bit too much. Maybe it's a comfortable friend. Maybe your hatred is something that you want to have to get even with people. No, let the Lord deal with those sinful desires and root that thing out. Please stand and let's ask Him for His grace. O Lord, we come to You, O Lord, confessing that within us there is murder, there is hatred, there is unjust anger. Which of us can say that we have never been unjustly angry toward our brother, that we've never hated our brother, that we have never um, dealt with our anger even when it is appropriate for something appropriate, that we have never dealt with it in the wrong way. Father, we have done all of these things. And Father, we pray that you would change us. Give us desire to be like Jesus Christ. And giving us that desire, we pray that then we would cry out to you and that you would be pleased to change us and to deliver us, to do a radical change in us the way you did in Judah. Father, we know that you're able to do that. And so we look to you, Lord, to accomplish your purpose and your work in us. For you are our Lord and our Savior and our Redeemer. And you have all the power and grace that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our song of response is Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.